This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. About a year ago, I interviewed an information systems expert named James Gaskin, whose work showed that people who played video games together cooperated better in subsequent tasks. And that study stuck with me over the past year because much as I really liked the idea of people doing something together to build camaraderie, it didn't seem very practical in a real-world setting. I mean, can you imagine meeting somebody for the first time in a business setting and saying, hey, look, before we get started with this business transaction, let's sit down for a quick game of Minecraft? Well, it turns out that there are other activities that strangers can do with one another that have similar effects on their subsequent ability to cooperate. And one of those things is a really, really common thing that humans do in social settings when they meet for the first time all the time. They eat together. But here's the catch. There's a way of eating, a, a cultural style that factors into this. Not all meals are created equal when it comes to subsequent cooperation. We're going to be talking about that today with Caitlin Woolley, an assistant professor of marketing at the S.E. Johnson Cornell College of Business, where she studies consumer motivation, the pursuit of goals, and the role that food plays in facilitating social connectivity. Caitlin Woolley, welcome. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So I love this food sharing study. Just setting it up sounds like it must have been kind of a blast because it's really a pretty simple experiment to set up, even though, well, the implications are pretty profound. But but before I guess we get to those implications and, and before we even get to the findings, let's talk about the setup here. This all starts with chips and salsa. Yeah, this was a really fun study for me to run. Um, and I got to, you know, pick food like and think about food that I like to eat together with others. And I think what's interesting here, especially with the chips and salsa, is that it requires a lot of coordination to eat, right? So you're not just taking potato chips from a bowl, but you're taking tortilla chips and then you have to right, dip it into the salsa and you're eating this with others. And I think we're often at parties where we're trying to, you know, interact with other people, eat food, and there's always, you know, situations around dipping food into salsa and trying not to spill and lots of issues at play that come together when you're eating this food. And so the setup itself, I think, was one of the fun things I liked about this study. And what you do is you basically set up one set of people who share a bowl of salsa and chips, and then you set up another group of people who have their own, right? That's basically the treatment that's going on here. Yep. So you either, right, everyone's coming in together in pairs and they sit down at the table and either they're sitting down and there's a communal bowl of chips and salsa um, that they're both going to be eating from, or in front of their own little section, there's an individual plate of chips and salsa for each person. And we weighed that out, right? So everyone, it was either, I think, 40 grams or something in the center when they're sharing, or each person had 20 grams. You weighed the salsa. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> We're being very, uh, very precise, very scientific. And yeah, we weighed the chips and we weighed the salsa. Okay, so then after you create these two different, very nominally disparate groups of people, there is a negotiation scenario where one person is asked to play the role of a company manager and the other pretends to be a union representative and they have to negotiate an acceptable wage. What happened? Yeah, so what we found was that people who 
were eating from the communal bowl when they were doing their negotiations. This was a really contentious negotiation, right? And the participants are supposed to really put themselves into this position that they're either the union leader and so they want a fair wage for their workers, or they're the company manager who's trying to keep costs down. And those who were sharing plates ended up actually coming to a better resolution. They were able to resolve the negotiation quicker and with better outcomes for both parties than those who had been eating from separate plates, even though they had the same set of instructions in both conditions and they were really trying to get the best bargain for themselves and they were incentivized actually to do well for themselves. And this is not just a small effect, right? I mean, like this is not nominal. The people who shared the bowls got to a deal 30% faster than the people who didn't. Is that right? Yeah. So the way that it was set up too is that there were kind of multiple rounds and there was a total of, of 22 rounds. And the first two rounds, there was no strike. And then after the first two rounds, the strike starts. And so People were having to manage all these different issues, and those who had shared plates, they were able to settle much more quickly in much fewer rounds, which meant that they were incurring fewer days of strike costs. So it was beneficial from that perspective. And this translates, if we could translate this into a real-world scenario, this could potentially translate into millions of dollars. I mean, this is not a small consideration, this small little treatment that could be done to help promote cooperation could be saving a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. And that was why we actually used this negotiation itself. So this was one that we've taken from um, our MBA classes, where you are put in the situation where there's, even within the game, the negotiation, there is a ton of money on the line. And so being able to resolve that even just a few extra days sooner ended up saving a ton from the perspective of the game. And I think exactly it translates into many real world situations that we have where there's, you know, there's stalemates and you're kind of waiting for the other party to make a move or you need to make a move. And having this experience of sharing plates before the negotiation really put people on the same page. They're better able to attend to the other person's needs and better able to resolve that through this bidding process that we had. Okay, so what's going on here? What is happening just as a result of this shared communal chips and salsa experiment? Yeah. So one of the experiments that we ran, we actually video recorded people because we wanted to get exactly to this question of what's going on. We asked people how they were feeling during the negotiation, how they felt about their counterpart, but we also wanted to see physically how is this method of eating shared food, how is it changing their interactions? And so what we found actually is that you can think about this from your own perspective. If you're grabbing food from a communal dish, you have to attend to the other person's needs, right? You need to see, are they trying to take food at the same time you are, in which case you're going to kind of bump into them. Do they seem hungry? Are they trying to take more or less? And you adjust your behavior based on what they're doing. When it's an individual plate, you're just looking down, right? You're kind of just looking at your own dish, maybe not even acknowledging the other person as much. And so that I think played a large role in the subsequent negotiation was just attending to that person during the food eating component. And there are cultural styles of eating that are more conducive to shared meals than others. Chinese food is one notable example, right? Indian food is often served on shared plates. So is the takeaway from this that maybe if you're meeting somebody for the first time and you're about to engage in a negotiation, maybe Chinese food is the way to go? Yeah, so this is a great connection. And actually, part of what was inspiring our research as well was that there's cultural style of eating. 
And so you mentioned Chinese food or Indian food. You can also think tapas or even family style eating. And this, I think, is largely influencing, you know, how we were thinking about food. And that would be the recommendation, right? So I would say, like, if you're going out to eat with someone for an interview or whatever to order shared plates to have some sort of like shared appetizer potentially as a way to kind of get on the same page. How did this affect the way you thought about your food interactions with others? Like after you started seeing this effect, did it start playing with your head a little bit in terms of like what you were going out to eat, when you were going out to eat, what you were choosing? Were were you strategizing about these interactions? (laughs) Well, I would say that this study, I was running this project kind of right before I was on the job market. And so definitely this was playing in my mind, this idea of when you go out on these job interviews, right, you often are going out to restaurants as part of the the process. And so people might ask, do you want to get your own glass of wine or do you want to share wine for the table? Do you want to <laughs> get your own appetizer or get appetizers to share? And so I was definitely thinking about this. And often I think like the economic perspective, what an economist or a rational person would say is like, we should always just get whatever it is that we want because that's going to maximize our utility. But if you think about the group and the group dynamics, me sacrificing, not getting the exact thing that I wanted to be able to share food with other people would actually have benefits for the group and even for my relationship with the group. Okay, so now you are on faculty at Cornell. Can I assume (laughs) that you guys went out to Chinese food or Indian food during that process? (laughs) No, but we did go out to Italian restaurant and the wine issue did come up, right? Are we going to get wine for the table or own individual glasses? And we did get wine for the table. So now there's this twist to this because, well, we're recording this interview in the middle of a global pandemic that has gotten a lot of people thinking about their social interactions. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you kind of think about what you found here in light of this new social, cultural, global health experience that we're having? Well, I think, you know, it's really interesting to think about this in the current environment because we aren't able to come together and share a meal. And that's such a large part about being human is, you know, not even just sharing from the same dish in my studies, but just being able to, to eat together and having this, this experience. And so I think it's an interesting time that we're living through. And I think people are actually trying to find ways to deal with this issue, right? I think one of the first things that I was aware of Having studied the importance of food consumption on people's relationships, people were trying to come together over happy hours over Zoom or or coffee hours and trying to organize these things virtually. And I think it's, you know, it's still unclear if eating food virtually is going to have the same impact as what we find when you're eating food together. I mean, obviously you can't share from a communal dish when you're eating virtually, but there are other benefits that I find from eating similar food, right? It doesn't have to be the exact same dish, but having just the same type of food can have effects in terms of connection. And so whether we get similar benefits over virtual interaction, I think would be interesting to tell. So do you think like if we're meeting for the first time, we just met for the first time just a few minutes ago. And mm-hmm. and if we had started this off, you know, on, on a virtual chat and I was eating some carrots and you were eating some celeries and we were both kind of like dipping them similarly and, and having that connection, do you think that there might be an effect there? I think so. And I have one study that speaks to this. So before the pandemic and everything, I had run 
a study on similar food consumption, it was not in, in the sense of conversation, but it was like you're watching this uh, person and the person on the screen is either eating similar food to you or different food, right? So the person on the screen, I think, has grapes and you have chocolate or they have chocolate and you have chocolate. And we do find that people, they trust each other. They trust the person more. This was for, they're doing a, a kind of like an infomercial for a product. They trust that customer review of the product more when they're eating similar food, even when it's not a face-to-face interaction, but it's virtual and it was actually a recorded interaction. And so I think it's interesting because there's a sense that it might seem uncomfortable or awkward, I think, to eat when you're talking to someone over the phone or over Skype interview, Skype meeting, right? But there is some benefit, I think, to sharing the same food, even when it's not in person. How did you get into researching food and its impact on social interactions? It's an interesting little research niche. And I'm wondering, like, what, where did that come from? Yeah, so it kind of came from two places. So I think I was always interested in this idea of eating similar food coming from when I was, I used to be vegetarian. And so I was, I think, probably keyed into this more so than other people, because I wasn't able to always eat what other people were eating. And then when I got to grad school, I actually, there were people in the developmental psych group who were studying the effects of similar food consumption in infants and how infants are surprised by people who get along when they didn't eat the same food, they didn't like the same food. They were kind of surprised by this. They expected that people who ate the same food would like each other more. And so some of that kind of inspired me in in thinking, well, this is, right, they're studying this with infants. Can we find effects with adults? Is it going to play out as well? And I think food is something that is so important to interactions and that it's something that people really, right, it's embedded in our society and in our rituals and our celebrations that I think the fact that there hadn't been a ton of work on it in marketing and psychology kind of, it it was an open space for someone to ask these questions. You mentioned being a vegetarian. Um, Not long after the food sharing study came out, you had co-authored another article on the experiences of people who have food restrictions, who can't for one reason or another or won't for one reason or another be able to engage in food sharing. And the result that you found is is a very powerful feeling of social isolation. You, You use that term, social isolation in the title of your paper, which I should know you wrote before the COVID-19 outbreak <laughs> made social isolation a culturally you know, like ubiquitous idea. How are you thinking about what that study says about the world in which the idea of food sharing, especially between strangers, is likely to change quite a bit? Are we going to all feel a little more social isolation? I think so. And this kind of, you know, when you start talking about the pandemic and how it's going to change food consumption, right? I was talking kind of about these virtual interactions, but you can also think about when we do have the chance to be back in person with people, I think people are going to be a lot less open to sharing food just because we're we're more concerned now about hygiene and and spreading germs and that sort of thing. Um, And so I I do think that in a sense, we, we may all be a little bit disconnected from from that but but my finding in that paper is really that when we come together over a meal like we're all you know we have our own food and and we're eating all pizza or something um but everyone's eating pepperoni pizza and there's that one person who's vegetarian who has their own garden slice they aren't able to experience the same sort of bonding over the food and so for that reason they feel excluded and it was a very strong effect and we find this with adults and also children i think we often think about like food restrictions in childhood and how that can affect 
children's ability to connect with their peers. Uh, and we often think about it from that perspective. And the, the fact that we found this with adults as well, I think was really powerful. I was taken by the fact that you found that it may be a more powerful feeling of loneliness than that that is experienced by many children who don't speak the same language as the children who they go to school with. It's it's that powerful. Yeah, it was it was really compelling to to sort of see. Right, it's it's a very upset. Like I was very interested to find this effect, but it was also a bit upsetting, right? Because right, if this is there, then it means that you need to kind of find ways to help people to form those connections and form those bonds because they're not able to to feel connected when they're unable to eat the food that others are eating. And I, I think people are aware of this, especially now, right? You often at restaurants, people are very concerned about what restrictions people might have, or when you have people over, you ask these questions. And yet it's still something that people who are restricted, they think about a lot and they have these food worries is what we found actually. That's that's sort of part of the reason why they're feeling so excluded and, and isolated is that they're, they're concerned about what they can and can't eat. Is it sad to you to think that you and, and your co-researchers have been coming upon these really fascinating sets of findings about food and, and now maybe the things that we've learned might not be well, they might not be as practical in the case of food sharing. They might be even more pervasive in the case of social isolation resulting from the inability to share food. I mean, the world's changed in so many ways. Is is what you found in your previous research, I, I don't want to say like, is it null and void, but it's colored a lot by the way our world is changing, right? Yeah, so I think I'm... Uh, I don't, I'm not upset by the way that the world is changing. It's actually, I think it's inspired me to ask more questions. And so to think about, right, how do we navigate this new world? And, you know, we're always going to still be eating. And so I think there's still questions about how we're eating in the situation that affects our connectedness. And I, I should say, too, that there is actually a recent replication of our um, shared shared eating style paper. And what we did in our studies, right, is we had everyone eat from the communal bowl of chips that were kind of sort of combined, right? So like everyone's chips was touching everyone else's chips. But what these researchers who replicated the finding did, um, they actually had right people taking like a package of crackers. And so it was sort of individually wrapped. And so that was really encouraging to me to say like, okay, there are ways that we can still share food and they found right effects on cooperation um, and have these, these beneficial outcomes without potentially some of the, right, I think, cases of like uh, contamination that you might expect from sort of food sharing, right? So even taking these individually wrapped packages still led to these beneficial outcomes when you're taking it from a shared dish than when you're taking it from your individual dish. Um, so I'm optimistic. And these sorts of moments that w- in which the world changes, you know, rather suddenly, these are good moments for research. I mean, they're not good moments, but moments full of opportunity for, for researchers because something was going along one way and now it it's shifted. So y- you mentioned that some of your research now is, is turning uh, its focus toward how people's interactions are changing now. You're, you're taking advantage of this. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, we think about the my paper on food restrictions and how people who have food restrictions are isolated. I, I think that Something like this, where people are doing more maybe remote um, social interactions could actually be beneficial from that perspective, because now right, if you don't drink and there's a happy hour, whereas before you might not have just gone, 
now you might still log on to the happy hour, but just have right your seltzer or something. And so I think some of the the ways that we're learning to kind of have social interactions move right online and, and move to these virtual communications could have some but like beneficial outcomes too from that perspective. So I was thinking this morning, you know, like one of the most famous people who have been stricken with COVID-19 is the actor Tom Hanks. And Hanks, of course, played the title character in the movie Forrest Gump. And and believe me, there's a connection here. I know this sounds like a, <laughs> a weird, but th- this is a movie that that for a very long time you could reference without explaining it all because everybody had seen it. But now it probably needs to be said that this is a movie about a guy who just sort of finds himself in the middle of a whole lot of really important historic events. And I I was sitting here this morning reading your CV and your research has touched on everything from intrinsic motivation, which a lot of people are really struggling with during a time of social distancing, uh, to the ways in which people are avoiding information, or to I should say, to the way that people avoid information that doesn't conform to their pre-existing beliefs about their world. You've done studies on this too. This is unquestionably happening in the midst of this uh, of this pandemic, and and of course, there's the research you've done on social isolation. It's got to feel like you're having sort of a Forrest Gump moment right now. <laughs> Um, well, I, we did like I, I, one thing that we did uh, through Johnson at Cornell was um, MBA students organized this kind of like COVID lunch hour discussion, and so I really did feel at that point right, that everything that I've been doing, I, I kind of have my hands in all these different aspects, as you're saying, right? This idea of information avoidance and right being overwhelmed by by news and um, right giving tips for how to stay motivated. So it, it's it makes me feel like at least like the work I've been doing is relevant and has uh, implications. And that's something that's been important to me in my research career. And I also am trying to use this as a way to ask new questions. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, there, that I, I can, the work that I've done is applicable here and can kind of speak to um, best practices in the current situation and then also finding ways to help people moving forward as well. What do you think we're going to discover about ourselves and about the way that we understand our relationships with others in, in the midst of all of this. What what are the what are the big takeaways that are are going to we're going to look back and go like ah yeah that suddenly became clear. <laughs> You're asking the big questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing that I think right is. We often say that people are kind of moving too quickly and, and not taking time and to really pause and think about what's important. And I think what this is forcing us to do, right, we're all, you know, in our homes. And I think you find a lot of people reaching for social connection, right, whether that's with their family, who they're in self-quarantine with, right, in self-isolation with, whether that's connecting with people that they might have lost touch with. Um, I know, right, you, you hear about people reaching out um, and trying to, to reconnect either with those who they always talk to or, or those who they've kind of lost and, and fallen out of touch with. And I think our social interactions, I'm a social psychologist at heart. And so I think this is um, maybe one of the biggest takeaways is finding people, right, reaching out to people for support, getting that support, finding ways to interact with them and connect with them, even when maybe you can't see them, right? And you can't um, meet face to face with them, but still having that support system and relying on the, the people in our lives. I think that's um, something that I have thought a lot about recently, and I think that we might see coming out of this. And I'm hoping that those sorts of 
uh, interactions will kind of continue afterwards, right? That it's not just that you're reaching out during this time, but that you kind of follow up and keep up with those people moving forward. I find a lot of researchers have, uh, you know, something of a disconnect in their own lives to to the things that they research and, and discover about the world. Uh, I'm not accusing anything here, but I'm just wondering, like, how how are you doing in reaching out to people in, in that way? Ah, yeah, they call it like me search, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, no, so I, I, um, I think that you know, I've, I've done this in my own life. And I think people are, you, you reach out to people and, and they're reaching out to you as well. And and one thing, right, kind of the me search aspect of it is that I've been trying to organize these things over meals, right? So we did, right, you couldn't meet together, um, maybe for like brunch with your family, but you can organize, right, we did like a virtual brunch. And then I have uh, these sorts of things where I'm trying to incorporate food consumption over, uh, over the meeting. So I think that one thing that if you've you kind of, right, as this is played out, you can call people and connect with them. But then after a while, you're just talking about the same thing over and over. And so I think having, right, kind of going back to food as a way to bring people together and this idea of sharing meals, even when you're not really together, uh, has been one thing that I've been looking to. Um, yeah. That's Caitlin Woolley. She was the co-author of a study on how shared food promotes cooperation in the journal Psychological Science and also the co-author of a recent study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology about feelings of social isolation among individuals with food restrictions. Caitlin, thank you. Thanks so much, Matthew. This has been great. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>